Hello and welcome to Mav Geeks We're on Series 3. This is the second full episode of our series with me, Ginny Carlin and Jamie Gordon. Today we are speaking to Britain's first female fast jet pilots, the incredible Joe Salter, MBE. Indeed, a complete trailblazer in her day and uh, looking forward to that conversation. How are you? What have you been up to? Yeah, I'm... <laughs> Really good, thank you, Jamie. I've got to say, when we spoke to Joe, I was like, I was proper fangirl in her. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was like she was just so amazing to speak to, and obviously for both of us, when you say trailblazer, there's no better word, really, is there? Well, no, because uh, you know it's difficult to believe in this day and age that there was a time when women just were not allowed a to fly any aircraft, let alone fast jets. But um, when that all came to pass in 1992, just in good time for her, actually, as it turns out, she set the whole thing rolling. Really amazing. Now you asked me about my week, Jamie. I've had a really good week, to be fair. I don't know if you remember us. We were kind of talking a little bit off podcast about RAF Fairford this summer. The B-52s, as they come back for an exercise every year, came back. And it was just incredible. I was based at RAF Bryce Norton, so really close. So I get to see them quite a bit. And I was like going and, and geeking out. And I don't know if you've ever been to Fairford. It's absolutely massive. It's where the Royal International Air Tattoo takes place every year. <laughs> There were so many spotters. And I'm I'm not just talking spotters, Jamie. I'm talking like, you know, we think we're nerd spotters. I'm talking deep nerd. You know what I mean? What, with, with notebooks and everything? Oh, my gosh. The, making us look like absolute amateur <laughs> nerds. But it's just incredible and like taking photos. But th- there's all different planes that go into Fairford, as I'm sure you know. But these guys were waiting for each individual one. They knew all the serial numbers. Uh, it was just incredible. But the B-52s, we've all heard the stories. We all know about like the, you know, with Vietnam and, and just how big these planes are. They're just massive. I, I can't quite... It's it's beyond comprehension how big they are. I mean, you could probably see them from space. You know what I mean? They are extraordinary things. Oh, my gosh. Some of the spotters were like going, oh, if you go down that path there, and there's a public footpath, um, obviously not trespassing because I didn't want the uh, American military police to come and take me off anywhere. But to get up close and personal with these planes, it made me feel weird. Eight engines. Eight engines, Jamie. But they're back. Well, they they just send an incredible signal um, to whoever the Americans want to signal, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Because they're they're so iconic, so huge, so effective. It's I was reading recently that these things will be in service for a hundred years, so they'll outlast virtually any other aircraft, including probably Typhoon, um, just because the the airframe is so incredibly well built and it's so adaptable because they keep updating the aircraft and the avionics, and and they just keep flying. It's incredible. But there's nothing else like it, is there? That that's that, that's that's the other thing. I mean, one of the planes I was. Was looking at and it came up on flight radar um and it said 70 years old <laughs> i know it's like a flying granddad you know what i mean it's it- just, but it's just testament to the way it was built in the first place for it to be still around 70 years on and like i say if you believe some people you read will be around for another 30 odd years um that's just exceptional no other aircraft will ever get any anywhere close to that kind of longevity i don't think my dad told me something, and I don't know if it's true, Jamie, so I'm just caveating with my dad told me, because my dad tells me all sorts, and only about 30% of it is actually accurate. But he was saying that on the B-52, they have like a little bike contraption to go up and down the fuselage when it's 
I don't know if that's true or not. Have you heard that? Oh, I can believe it. Right. I can believe it. I mean, it'll be a scooter or something like that because, yeah, well, it's quicker than walking. Well, I, I'm going to tell my dad that actually I believe him this time because usually I'm like, are you sure? Because it's usually rubbish. But anyway, what I was going to say to you is that the B-52s are back. Uh, everybody at Fairford like waved them off uh, when they went because they'd been uh, on the exercise and it was sort of quite well known the dates when they, they were going and stuff from the Fairford spots pages and everything. But it's so nice to see them in and out. And what a noise. I can't even tell you the noise. They scream, Jamie. They scream, but it's a lovely scream. Oh, it is just brilliant. I mean, I always thought that, you know, a Vulcan taking off was about the coolest sound you'd ever hear. But a B-52 with all eight engines going, um, just unsurpassable. And I've got really fond memories of Fairford, actually. I remember taking Ali, my wife, there once. She phoned me up and said, where are you? I said, um, I'm just up the road from the F-16. And of course, she said, well, what's that? Said it's a plane. Well, I don't know what an F sixteen is. I have no idea where I am. But I also I got so lucky. I met Brian Trubshaw, the right. Concorde test pilot. Oh my god! Uh, at Fairford, and also Buzz Aldrin. Um, he was there for that year as well. So fond memories of hold on, uh, of hold that. on, it's a massive place. <laughs> Wait a minute, you, you met Buzz Aldrin? I did. I met Buzz Aldrin. I couldn't believe it. And he oh was. Gosh. I mean, this is about. 30 years ago or something like that. So he was 60-odd then, but he was a great storyteller, aviation royalty. He's in his 90s now, still going strong, his Buzz Aldrin. I know, I follow him on Twitter. He's, he's really funny on Twitter. And he has a good relationship with William Shatner on Twitter as well. <laughs> the two, the t I mean, they're both the same age, more or less, these days. But, um, of course, one's a fake aviator and one's the real thing. Yeah, but William Shatner, I suppose, has been into space well, he has. I was just thinking that. He did go up with Jeff Bezos, didn't he? Oh so, my gosh. Uh, lucky so-and-so. So I went to Riyadh this year. It was like the hottest day of the year. It was so warm. I met Charlie Duke from Apollo 16. and oh, wow. Or I should say Charles Duke, sorry. But I'm, I've read so many books where everybody calls him Charlie. Um, and I got to interview him. But you know what, Jamie? I was so upset. It was so noisy and he was so softly spoken. I couldn't use the interview. But, but there was part of me that not that bothered because I got to meet Charles Duke. He sat down, he was wearing a flying suit. He's just a lovely, humble, handsome man, American hero. And do you know what Jamie when he walked in? The media person said, uh, oh, we've got this guy called Charles Duke. I was like, what? 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 Charlie Duke? She was like, yeah. I was like, where is he? Bring him to me now. He was so gracious and so lovely. And when I shook his hand, I said, sir, this is one of the biggest honours of my life. And he was just so absolutely lovely. And really quickly, Jamie, I asked him the question, when you go out with friends and you look up in the sky and you see the moon, do you point to it and go, you can see that up there? I, I've been there. <laughs> Have you? <laughs> and he went, yeah, I do sometimes, which made me laugh. But there we go. Anyway, so the other thing that's happened in my week, Jamie, that's just amazing. So I'm working out of Salisbury Plain at RBFBS studio here for this week. And I was here last week. And I stayed... Uh, in Amesbury and the people who I was staying in a cottage in somebody's back garden and it was just amazing but the landlady who was ex-military herself we were chatting away and um, she said to me oh uh, the the chap next door is 91 he walks 20 miles a week and uh, he, he's an ex-test pilot from Boscombe Down and he has flown just about every plane and apparently 
if I misquote him, I'm really sorry. Uh, but you know, this year when the South Korean aerobatic team were over for React, because they did loads of like the flying displays over Boscombe Down, and he was like, "Yeah, I don't think I've flown that one, but I've like flown most other things." <laughs> think about it. If he's 91, I'm thinking all those beautiful Cold War jets. We need to get him on, Jamie. Definitely. I tell you what. If if only he was alive today, the guy that we, I'd really love to spend more time with was uh, Eric Winkle Brown who was a Royal Navy test pilot, oh, and he flew 450-odd types of aircraft, which will never be surpassed. Um, and I was privileged to speak to him because we set up an interview with him. And he was a lovely old guy. But this next-door neighbour of yours sounds very intriguing. And whatever it takes, however much it costs, let's get him on. <laughs> I should go around there and beg, Jamie. <laughs> Cool. Right. Well, let's turn to our special guest this week, who is an extraordinary woman. Jo Salter joined the Air Force back in 1992. She was Britain's first female fast jet pilot. She's now an inspirational and motivational speaker. She's also works on the corporate side of life for PricewaterhouseCoopers. So she's very much bought the T-shirt and we were lucky enough to catch up with her not too long ago. So absolutely stoked to have you with us on Mav Geeks, Joe. We're going to speak about all the amazing stuff that you've done, uh, about being a trailblazer. But first of all, there's something very, very, very important I have to ask you. I can't believe that you are a friend of Tom Cruise. What's he like? <laughs> you know, um, I'm not sure spending a day with him or having met him at the premiere really counts as becoming his friend, although I'll take that, Jeannie. I'll take it. Um, the truth is he was absolutely lovely. I mean, a really nice man who I was blown away by the humility and the time that he spent just speaking to everybody, especially the young people. And people went crazy to see him. I mean, there were <laughs> there were people climbing over barriers to just to try and get a photo. So he's very impressive. He's a proper aviator as well, isn't he? Yeah, he has his own aircraft. We First time I met him, we just talked about G-forces and he had pulled more G than I had. <laughs> but mainly just a really nice, nice man who has a passion for aviation and also, I would say, a passion for his craft of acting right. and real commitment to delivering a high quality and high performance. So that day at RIA that I was there, when Tom Cruise turned up. The funniest thing I remember, Joe, was that obviously there were so many aviators there and there was a crew from Bryce Norton, a Hercules crew, and uh, looking, you know, very sort of, you know, aviator-ish in their, in their flying suits and their, in their sunglasses, called me over. I was like, you all right? And they were like, yeah, um, can you get us a meeting with Tom Cruise? <laughs> Like, no, no, you guys are really cool. I, I'm so not cool. You're, you've got a much better chance of speaking to him. But uh, yeah, it was an absolutely fantastic day. Um, let's just talk about some of your um, your background, Joe. W was there an aviation background in your family? No, I don't have an aviation background at all. And I had been to Biggin Hill Air Show two or three times, I think, when I was younger, because I grew up in Croydon. But it was more the opportunity. So I, when I, um, you know, you may find this a funny story, but when I joined the Air Force, it was the days of desperately seeking Susan. And I was a South London girl with quite a broad accent, and I thought Madonna was really cool. So I had back-combed hair, I had bangles up my arms, and 
and sort of fishnet stockings when I turned up to the RAF Careers Information Office in London to say that I wanted to join for the engineering cadetship. And it was the first year they'd ever given these cadetships to women. And they took one look at me and laughed. And I explained in my very broad accent what I wanted to do. And, and they, they pointed to this group of people to sit with. And they were all male, bar one lady. But they were all in either blue or black suits, all of them. And I sat there in this sort of flash of colour, thinking, oh, my goodness, what am I doing? And then in my interview, they asked me what the aircraft was in the picture. And I said, ah, well, actually, I don't know much about aeroplanes, but I'm sure what I've joined, I'll learn very quickly. And they accepted my application with the proviso that I really needed to go and learn something about the Air Force. <laughs> Because you, you went for an engineering um, scholarship. Had you any intention of flying at that stage? Or was that the only way to get into the RAF? Yeah, women weren't allowed to fly. So it yeah. not only was it not an aspiration at that point because I didn't know about it, it was also, and I didn't know people who did it, and I didn't. I went to a local comprehensive in South London. This was really purely a way of getting out of Croydon because I just didn't want to stay there anymore. When you went for air crew selection, how was that for you? I went, and again, well, the motivation to going, and I, I sometimes reflect on how how we make decisions in life. We can easily look at people and think, wow, how did they get to where they got to or do all these exciting things that they did. I was on my officer training post my degree when the announcement was made. It was in 1989 that women could fly. And they brought all of the ladies who were already on the course and said, who would like to become a pilot? And I sort of just shot my hand up because the aptitude tests were at Biggin Hill. It gave me two days off. I got a free trip home to have a cup of tea with my mum. So I felt very relaxed as I started to do my aptitude tests. But as I started to do it, I realised that it was something I could do. And I had been fencing. You know what parents are like. My mum and dad met at a fencing club. And therefore, we were all made to go fencing. So from the age of seven, I had effectively trained my brain in hand-eye coordination. So the aptitude test just, I found, worked for me. And I then started to think, oh, my goodness, perhaps this is something I could do. And it was my first trip in the chipmunk that I just fell in love with flying. I remember going to Biggin Hill myself, and um, I failed on colour blindness, unfortunately. But... Um... The aptitude tests were, were they the old stick in the wooden box in front of you? Yes, they were. It, yes. That was very Heath Robinson, it seemed. They had the big old computer, didn't they, with the, the, they the depth to them that you just don't see anymore. Yeah, exactly. A lot of green on the screen. So what, what was it like being like the poster girl, almost? Well, Jeannie, I wasn't. So when I joined, I was, or became, became a pilot, I was the seventh girl to start flying training, which meant that I was just following behind a poster girl. In fact, I saw um, Julie Gibson just the other day. Last week, I had a dinner with her, who, of course, was our first female pilot on the Hercules. And it wasn't until I got to TAC Weapons at that, uh, down at, no, was, I was down at Broadie then. And so I'd already got my fast jet wings a few years later that the attention arrived on me because I was now the first to be at that stage. And how was the reception when you got to 617 Squadron, your first operational squadron? So, so mixed. I think 
you know, it's, it was a big culture change having a woman on the front line. And there were some people who didn't think it was a good idea. And there were some people who were, well, why wouldn't we? This is actually about brains operating a machine. It's, it's not about gender in any way. However, it's important to recognize that when new things happen like this, and this, you know, I, th- I think I was the fifth in the world when it happened, but, but the first in Britain, that there takes time for transition and for people to understand and shift. And of course, I was just thrown in and, and really lucky. I've got two big brothers and I think that as well as a sister, but that really helped me being able to adapt and survive in that environment. And people today just say, oh, Joe, it's because you've got such a good sense of humour. And Because um, if I hadn't have been laughing, I'd have been crying, I'm sure. <laughs> but you, you must have been conscious of, of your position at that stage, though. I, I mean, I was young. I was So I arrived on the squadron, I, I was 23, probably 24, perhaps. Really still quite young. You know, your brain has is only just sort of forming, isn't it, in the whole neuroplasticity world. And just trying to be the best pilot that I could be with that being different because you can't help but be different when you're the only woman in the room so I don't I don't really think I thought about it like that and when I reflect on some of the incidents and things that happened it was because they were you know the the banter can always be selected on because someone's different it wasn't because I was a woman and I think it's difficult to separate that out I have lifelong friends from the Air Force who I formed either at university or in those early years that's the most telling part gosh incredible so tell us about the tornado I saw you at the RAF Hendon Museum on the BBC um, when the Top Gun Maverick film came out and you were stood next to the tornado I thought at one point you were going to start stroking it it was quite funny what was it what, (laughs) what, what was the tornado like to fly I like to think of the tornado as a bit of a like a Rolls Royce, if I think, because I've flown in an F-16, a Harrier, a Jaguar. And because of my opportunity to speak on BBC Breakfast, I, at the RAF Museum, said, you know, it's such a shame that I don't have tickets for the premiere. And of course, by one o'clock that afternoon, (laughs) I had tickets for the premiere and was invited to go back. And they sent a satellite truck to do breakfast television the next morning. At which point I said, it's such a shame I haven't flown in the typhoon. And the next week I had the opportunity to go and fly in the typhoon, which is absolutely amazing. So the tornado I think of, I always used to think of the Rolls Royce, you know, it's got um, two in and it's got Rolls Royce engines anyway, the RB199s. But the feeling of putting the burners in, the feeling on the end of the runway and, and you feeling it in the seat of your pants and the vibration as you would accelerate quickly down the runway and take off. But it was more Rolls Royce in the way that it flew rather than an F-16, which be, might be a bit more Porsche-like. <laughs> No, it's a really good analogy. I'd, um, I mean, I was lucky enough to fly in a Phantom, and <clears throat> the, just the raw power. It's very difficult to describe unless you've actually experienced it. A, a bit of a bit of a strange question as well. I intend to ask this to uh, to Chris Burswell, who was a Harrier pilot. When you saw that tornado in Hendon. If they'd have turned around to you and said, I mean, I just watched this most terrible film the other day about some people getting back into an old space shuttle that was in a museum and flying it to the moon. They literally did fly it over the moon in the film. 
If somebody came to you and said, Joe, we absolutely need you to get it back in that tornado and fly it again, um, just give it your best shot. Do you think that you'd still, is it like riding a bike? Do you think you'd still be able to kind of get off the ground, fly, know what you were doing, even though you've not flown it for a long time? I know you know how to fly, but the actual tornado. Yes, I do. However, I would really want the engineers near me first to check the aircraft over because, of course, the trust that you have with the engineers that service your jet that's the critical part. That would be what I'd be, you know, yes. And also, you know, you always flew with a checklist. So you'd have a checklist to be able to go through. Might be a bit slower than I used to be in, in <laughs> taking it through. But it's, again, like getting into a new car. I was going to say, I'm really looking forward to asking that question to Chris Burswell, who flew Harriers in the 1980s. and just wondering if it's, it would be the same for him. Um, and I'm speaking next week to a 91-year-old former test pilot. So um, I might just ask him the same question as well. I was really interested when I went to fly the Typhoon because I felt a bit nervous about whether the kit would fit me again, whether I'd be able to get into the cockpit, you know, because I'm in my mid-50s now. And I managed to do it. I'm strapped into the seat and then the canopy closed. And at the moment the canopy closed, I felt like I was at home. The smell of Af- Afghas, that feel, I felt like I was sat on my sofa. And I think that that familiarity just never leaves you. Absolutely loved it. I just wanted to go back to the squadron. <laughs> so I, I was going to ask you, obviously, you were saying earlier, it's, it's not just the tornado that you, you've flown over the years. I remember speaking to somebody who trained on Harriers and is now on the Typhoon. And he said he loved the Harrier but he always felt like it was trying to kill him. <laughs> did, did you feel like that at all with any of the other aircraft that you've flown, like maybe the Harrier? So I understand completely. I've only ever had one trip in a Harrier and I completely understand what he was saying about the instability when you were hovering in a Harrier. And I think some of the, you know, if you just look at the F-35 now and you know you press a button and look at the typhoon and, and I realized how easy the typhoon was to fly in comparison to the tornado when I had that trip. You know, technology means that it can help pilots to be to have more capacity to be able to deliver and do the job that they need to do. Cool. And Joey, did you find as well at the end of your flying career that flying at the, the, the G that you were flying in the conditions you were flying, did it have like an effect on your body? Did you notice by the end of it? So I always loved G-forces, always suited me. And again, you know, jumping into a typhoon, G-force was absolutely no issue to me. And after my full-time career, I spent 12 years working at 6AEF or volunteering at 6AEF at Benson, flying air cadets. So I've flown over a thousand air cadets, which of course you still can pull G doing aerobatics. And then again, jumping in the typhoon, I've flown with the Red Arrows. So G, I'm quite small and muscular, really suits me. I think you have much more effect if you're if you're tall and thin. All right. Then luckily I'm compact and it's still a G monster, Jeannie. <laughs> so so you didn't really notice any difference after flying? No, I, you, I mean, you do gain G tolerance. So the longer you're flying and when you're spending hours pulling G over a period of weeks, then your body becomes more used to it. So certainly if you've been out of the cockpit for a while and you jump back in, you can be more sensitive to it. But for me personally, I can say, always loved it, always suited me. So how are the aviators of the future looking, given your experience with the cadets? 
So the aviators of the future are still predominantly male in terms of the cadets. You know, there are, and and interestingly, when I would fly the cadets, I would I would sometimes have oh I didn't know that women flew. So I think that there is something about you know we we need the best talent for the job, and the best talent comes from the widest pool, and actually providing role models having a larger group that people can aspire to be whatever they want to be is the most important thing to me that we do and you know the love the love of aviation is just in there in so many young people and again what can we do to nurture and encourage that so you're a a motivational speaker you uh, are director at at PricewaterhouseCoopers as well tell us about the motivational speaking I mean that that must be a, a massive buzz for you yeah, people sometimes say, what do you do now that's going to match up to the flying? And I say, oh, I stand up, stand in front of complete strangers and bare my soul, which, which works. I started speaking some years ago when I was asked to speak at the Institute of Directors Women's Leadership Summit. And my first speech was scripted, practiced, 15 minutes, and I stood behind a lectern. And I've evolved over time to just tell stories that – are from my life, are from my experiences, and really hoping to just inspire people to stretch themselves, to be brave, to scare themselves a little every day, really. And so I continue to scare myself a little every day by doing it, but absolutely love it. Although you're just as you're only ever as good as your last landing, you're only ever as good as your last speech. <laughs> So, Joe, you are on regroup captain with 601 Squadron. Is that is that a love of yours now? It is. And, in fact, I looked at coming back full-time to the Air Force a number of times. And it's at that point, it was quite difficult to get back in after I'd left. However, 601 Squadron gives me the opportunity to bring all of the experience I've had in the corporate world, to offer my network, to support, to advise the Air Force and... I feel like if you cut my arm, I'd have Royal Air Force like a piece of rock, yeah, if you see what absolutely. I mean, because I've only had a few years of my life where I haven't been involved with some part of it. And I'm very proud because that service is incredibly important to me and I hope to be able to continue to do it for a few years yet. Excellent. Joe. thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been really lovely to speak to you. Lovely chatting. Thank you. Cheers, Joe. Thanks. Well, what an extraordinary story from an extraordinary lady. And thanks to Joe Salter for giving us some of her precious time. Oh, my life, Jamie. She's friends with Tom Cruise, for goodness sake. I mean, we're only on instalment three of series three and we're getting these kind of amazing people on already. Join us next week, though, for our next mini-mav. I'm going to be speaking to ex-Navy pilot Andrew Neofitu all about the Sea Harrier. And I've kind of got a bit of a special interest in Andrew because I was actually at school with him. How mad is that, Jamie? Um, Really? (laughs) Yeah. I just talk for a living. He flies uh, amazing planes and does amazing stuff. But there we go. Can't wait for that. If you want to get in touch with us, of course, you can email us, mavgeeks at bfbs.com. And of course, listen to all previous episodes, plus this one, uh, wherever you get your podcast from. And why don't you have a little look at all the other podcasts we've got there, bfbs.com forward slash podcasts. See you next week for our Mini Mav. Bye. Take care.